Nightmerica is an independently produced podcast. If you like what we are doing, please consider supporting patreon.com forward slash Aaron Sagers. Welcome to Nightmerica, a podcast that takes you on a tour of the abnormal, paranormal, weirdly true, and truly weird in every corner across this nation. Because whether it's ghosts, aliens, monsters, or monstrous humans, there's something strange in your neighborhood. Episode 42, Bad Butchers. Ahoy, ahoy, Nightmaricans. Aaron Sagers here, journalist, uh, paranormal journalist, researcher of all things weird, and currently appearing on travel channels. Paranormal caught on camera, but you guys probably all know that because I've said that multiple times before. But I like to repeat myself just in case maybe, I don't know, maybe there's a newcomer this week and like, what? I'm tuning into this. Who is this guy? And then you would follow up by saying, you don't tune into a podcast. You just download it. Anyhow, uh, sometimes I struggle with technology, guys. Sorry. Anyhow, uh, I am very excited to have this guest co-host with me this week. She is a old, old friend of mine going back, I don't know, so many years, easily probably a decade or more at this point. And uh, we, we kind of lost her to another continent for a while. She was in Australia. We now have her back stateside. And she's a hell of an amazing researcher. She knows genealogy and... Of course, you also saw her on Ghost Hunters and Ghost Hunters International, and I'm just happy to see her because she's a great friend. So let me bring her on, Chris Williams. Chris Williams, thanks so much for joining this this little shindig, this episode, this storytelling podcast. <laughs> thanks for having me. You said you make me you make me sound way too good over there. I'm over here like, oh man, talking about. <laughs> You've earned you've earned every bit of it, and and it's true. I do I do legitimately miss you. It's been, I, it's actually been a couple of years since I've seen you in person. I was in Australia, and you were in Australia, and that was 2019, I think. So, yeah. Yeah. can't believe that's already a couple of years now. I know, and you're the only person I knew from the states that actually came over for a visit. <laughs> Damn straight, Damn, like you know. Do you recall the the thing that I uh, the the thing that I remember from that visit? It was just it's kind of surreal hanging out with a person in another country, another continent when you know them from over here. There's like just this weird kind of surreal moment. But beyond that was the fact that when I was at your place, I encountered that massive spider. <laughs> I was waiting for that. <laughs> That was like a normal everyday occurrence. Those things, they're called huntsmen. Yeah. And our house was infested with them, really. And they could be anywhere from this big to the size of my hand. And the one you saw was, I think, closer to the size of my hand, stuck between the screen of our window and the window pane. But I've seen them crawling across our bed, crawling up the walls. I found one in our toilet. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I thankfully, I don't have a, I don't have arachnophobia. I'm not scared of spiders. I love spiders. And I think it's probably a matter of having grown up in Florida 
spiders would take care of the other kind of insects and whatnot that you didn't want to encounter. So spiders didn't bother me, but that was an intimidating one. I was terrified of spiders, terrified. So to live in that house, I mean, I used to flip out over spiders that were like that. <laughs> so when I lived in that house, a lot of times I'd try to have tunnel vision because it was either massive cockroaches mm. or massive spiders or geckos. We'd have geckos, um, you know, not one gecko. A gecko is cute, but like 10 to 20 geckos, not so cute. Um, but it was crazy because I remember saying to my ex that we had to get rid of the huntsman. He's like, well, you can't get rid of the huntsman because the huntsman eat the cockroaches and you can't get rid of the geckos because the geckos eat the huntsman who eat the, the whatevers. And I felt like I lived in that book, the little old lady who swallowed a fly. <laughs> yeah. What would she do? She swallowed a fly and then she swallowed a spider to get the fly. Was that? Yeah. 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 Uh, well, that's, that's exactly it. Is that my thing? Uh, that freaks me out are cockroaches. And I think, I think the one place that might have them bigger and scarier is probably Australia, but Florida gets some pretty massive ones when I was growing up. So then it was a matter of like, okay, well, spiders would take care of that cockroach situation. So, you know, you live alongside the cockroaches or alongside the spiders to deal with the cockroaches. Yeah. And they're everywhere. And then we had a massive Python that lived on our roof that we had found another one. It was about five feet and our neighbor's like, Oh no, that's not him. He's too small. (laughs) It's like, Oh, it's good to be home. Yeah. I know growing up in new England, you didn't really have to deal with too much of any, any really insects or anything. Right. No, I mean, we had, I think they're called the brown recluse. And yeah. They can bite you and cause a lot of damage. Um, but outside of that, not really. Yeah. yeah. So it's a whole other world. But we're going to be talking a little bit about that world with your story momentarily. But before we get to that, so I have a little game where I'm going to read you two news of the weird headlines. And then you tell me which one you want to learn more about. Okay. okay. So here we go. Uh, okay. Headline one. Having certain traits may make you more susceptible to hearing the dead. Or, that's top, that's headline one. Or, you can now explore the CIA's entire collection of UFO documents online. All right, Chris Williams, which headline do you want to learn more about? I'll go with the traits. All right. Having certain traits might make you more susceptible to hearing the dead. This comes from iflscience.com. And the story goes that scientists have identified the traits that could make people more inclined to claim they, air quotes, hear the dead. A new study suggests that those who describe themselves as clairaudient, as opposed to clairvoyant or seeing the dead or clairsentient, feeling or sensing the dead, have certain traits in common, including susceptibility to auditory hallucinations and childhood experiences. And it goes on that if you're wondering why scientists are spending precious time investigating the supposed paranormal, the researchers say the findings of the study have great value in understanding the sometimes traumatic auditory auditory hallucinations that can accompany mental health issues. Their study, fittingly, is published in Mental Health religion and culture. And it goes on to acknowledge that spiritualists and mediums and psychics have fascinated scientists, but they're really 
using this belief to explore sort of the skeptical side of it and and explain it away with science as opposed to saying that those traits are making you more susceptible to hearing the actual dead. It's more like more susceptible to the hallucinations. So okay. what, what what's your take on that? Um, well, I like how it started off because it did. I went from like, this is just going to go to crazy town real quick. I have a feeling, but <laughs> the way that it was worded, it was taking a skeptical approach, which I appreciate um, even more so these days. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think there is quite a bit that could probably be tied to a mental illness to some degree. I know that's something that we've checked into with previous clients or cases just to be sure that um, the problem or the experiences weren't coming from from that source rather than something else. But I don't know. Yeah. Doesn't sound I, too far-fetched. I, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I'm glad that anyone is studying it. Plus, I, I would say, first off, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that applying a skeptical mindset is a good thing. I think cynicism is not always a good thing. No. When you dial straight to disbelief, but yeah. you know, opening open in mind is a good thing. But I will say that the years that I've known you, one thing that has not changed is there is a signature skeptical Chris Williams look that you get. <laughs> that when you start to hear something, I see this is uh, this is an audio medium, but for <laughs> people that check out the Patreon, you can see there is like a look that comes over your face, like uh huh, yeah. <laughs> I know where this is going. Like, really? It's so funny because these days, especially, like, if I watch something, every, every rare now and then, I'll watch something paranormal related. And I'll start to get into it. And as soon as, like, the word demon or something else gets thrown in, like, my eyes glaze over and I'm just like, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> where we're going? Um, yeah, so I can... I can understand what you're saying. I feel <laughs> myself right. check out. <laughs> it's good. Well, I mean, you know, I'm I'm glad some things never change. It's a good look. It's a good like, <laughs> a, probably a good poker face too. I bet. Like, you know, I, I you uh, I well, you know, we'll we'll have to put that. We'll have to try that. It's I've never played you in poker actually, and no, I, I suck at poker, so I'd be fairly easy to beat. Plus, I get red, so my face. Whether I'm guilty of something, whether I'm super guilty. excited, I get red. Yeah, I'm always, I'm probably always guilty. I'm just always red. My, yeah, I just get like real, you know, I, and I blush easily too. So yeah. I would be a bad poker person. But <laughs> well, we're going to dive into this topic. And I said bad butcher, and that kind of applies to your story. And this is a story that is out of Australia. I mean, this is Nightmarica, but we, you know, we like to go abroad sometimes as we're, we're, story we're traveling through storytelling. And before I hear that story, I want to actually hear from one of our sponsors. Support for Nightmarica is brought to you by Manscaped, which is the best in men's below the waist grooming. Now, guys, it is the 21st century, and there is no excuse for not looking your best. You got to take care of that business down there. Thankfully, Manscaped has you covered with the Perfect Package 3.0, which comes with all the essentials for your grooming needs, including the Lawnmower 3.0 trimmer and crop formulations. And yeah, I'm talking about ball deodorant and toner. 
But big news, Manscaped has also just released their new cologne scent to help you feel good and smell good all over at all times. It's called Refined, and it is light, it's approachable, it's not overpowering. Nobody wants that really overpowering scent, and this Refined is actually gentlemanly in all the right ways. It's like your wingman for the night out to keep you fresh and keep you ready for anything. It's calming, it's inviting, and this signature scent introduces a light citrus burst before settling into the anchoring notes of vetiver and a woodsy masculine finish. Also, the 50 milliliter spray is hypoallergenic, it's cruelty-free, it's dye-free, it's paraben-free, and 100% vegan. Plus, something I really like about it is it comes in a really nicely designed glass bottle, which really kind of evokes this old-school cool. I really dig it. All right, guys, look good, smell good, feel sexy for yourself and whomever else gets close to you. And good news. If you head to manscaped.com and use the code NIGHTMERICA, you will get 20% off your order plus free shipping. That's code NIGHTMERICA at manscaped.com. Your balls and body will thank you. And we're back. <laughs> and, and, Let's 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 hear your story, Chris Williams. What's I, I'm I'm excited about your bad butcher story. It's funny. I don't even remember how I stumbled across the story. I, it was one of those deals when I was in Australia. I couldn't work because I didn't have a work visa, so I was bored and I would find mm. things to do. And I had started getting into researching just oddball history, and somehow I came across this one. It seems to be one of the bigger stories in Brisbane. Um, so in Brisbane. The city is kind of not cut in half, but there's a river, Brisbane River, that runs through it. And it's just south of the city center. And there's like a hairpin turn or bend in the river. And at that bend, um, sticking up towards Brisbane, is an area called Kangaroo Point. Okay. Now, if you live in Australia, or in Brisbane especially, Kangaroo Point is pretty well known. It's a beautiful big cliff. Um, at the bottom of the cliff, it's paved, there's running tracks, jogging tracks, biking tracks, um, places to barbecue, go boating, rock climbing, the whole deal. And it's got a really good view of the city because you're just across the river from it. So I used to go down there and I would walk the tracks all the time. So when I found out about the story, I thought it was, well, I don't want to say it's pretty cool because it's creepy this is the whole thing about true crime stuff is that it's horrible yes and and people there's suffering of human beings and typically loss of life and very macabre stuff but it's also cool i don't know cool is it's a weird word to say but it is sort of cool as far as intriguing it's an intriguing story So there was this Irishman, Patrick Maine, who moved from Ireland to Brisbane in 1841, I believe. And he was poor. He ended up finding a job as a butcher on Kangaroo Point. And the story goes, from what I was told by one of the guides who does like a walking tour over there, he said that um, Patrick was in a bar and this guy by the name of Robert 
Cox, I believe, walked in and he started bragging about all this money that he won. I don't know if it was at poker. I don't know how he came across it, but he won a lot of money and he's being really loud about it. So the next day, Robert Cox had gone missing and parts of his body were showing up all around Kangaroo Point. His mm. head's in one place, his arms and legs are in another. The man is just all over Kangaroo Point. So about a year later, Robert or Patrick Maine somehow has the money to buy his own butcher shop and he gets married. So there's a lot of rumors going around of where he got this money because it made no sense. Mm -hmm. So the family starts doing really well. He was really smart in investing. He ended up getting a hold of a lot of like um, real estate throughout Brisbane. Um, and they say that on his deathbed, or at least the rumor is that on his deathbed, he either confessed to a friend or a priest that he had killed the man, Robert Cox, who won the money. And that's right. where his money came from. But there's no solid proof. There, there's nothing. So nobody knew whether or not the story was true. But of course, people tend to grab onto things and run with it. So it left his wife, Mary, and his five kids kind of ostracized from all the higher ups in Brisbane. Mm -hmm. And the story is just weird because I guess Patrick was known for having a temper and he was a butcher. So an angry butcher and this man, Robert, showed up in pieces all over Kangaroo Point. So you could kind of draw the parallels there, obviously. But um, I guess his temper was bad enough. They say that his wife made all his kids promise um, that they wouldn't have children. Right. She was afraid that his temper or his illness would go through the family. Be like a poison that's passed down. Yeah, some sort of poison or mental illness. I don't know what his deal was, but he was just known for being kind of angry and violent. So none of the kids have kids. Um, I think two or three of them, I don't know if there was some sort of mental illness in, in two or three of them or some sort of physical handicaps. I can't remember, but I remember there being something there. Um, and two of their children were successful, but they never married. One became a doctor. They both started giving back to the community. Um, their most like, known, what was that? Oh, I was just going to say, like, they probably wanted to get back in on the community as well after being ostracized, right? Like, they don't want want that hanging around their necks. But, but I apologize. Continue. Yeah, it's a bit of trying to fix the name and then maybe feeling guilty, not knowing whether it's true or not. Who knows? Um, but they used a lot of the money that they inherited to buy more real estate. Um, and then they bought over 200 acres of land, which Queensland University's main campus still sits on today. They bought it with the purpose of giving it to the university. So it's kind of funny to think that a university is sitting on land bought by a family that may have murdered to get the money. <laughs> <laughs> And it's not something that's talked about widely for good reason. They'll talk about the son, James Maine, who him and his sister, Mary, are the ones that donated the money. And they've got statues and plaques and buildings named after him on the university. But they try not to tell the story of the father. Yeah, no stories of the dad with like a, a statue with him holding a cleaver 
or anything? <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> none that I saw. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty wild. And I know that um, two of the main buildings that they they have that are still in the, the main trust was um, the Brisbane Arcade and the Regent Theater, I believe. But the Brisbane Arcade is, do you know what an arcade is? Yeah, well, so of course, I think in the States, we think of like a, a video game arcade, but it's it's more of a promenade, like a a, a walking, an area that, that is slightly covered that you would walk through and maybe have some shops and whatnot in, right? Yeah. Is that, that's yeah. my understanding. Yeah, it connects two streets and it's oh, okay. kind of like an indoor shopping center and kind of a walkway through. Okay. So they had, I think they built the Brisbane Arcade and they've got it worked into the trust that any proceeds from the arcade and I believe the theater go directly to Queensland University's Medical Center because James was a doctor. So they're still profiting off the main family, even today, years after they, they all died off. And it's wild too, because I had visited the cemetery that they're buried in. Um, it's called Tawang Cemetery. And they have this massive tomb that's like insanely just bright white, huge, crazy, crazy ornate thing. It's insane. <laughs> it was mm -hmm. really weird. Um, but I believe part of the trust agreements with Queensland University is they have to look after the tomb. Oh, right. So yeah. It's an amazing condition. And it's, yeah, it's a pretty weird cemetery. Is the dad the um, the original? Uh, was it Robert? Uh, is that was that the original? What's your um, dad? Patrick. Patrick. Sorry, Robert was the guy that was hacked up. So is Patrick's grave in there as well with his with the family with the son? I don't know. I honestly don't know. So I know He's that family tomb. So I would assume. Yeah, so. it could be. Well, I know you. I know you have a very research-minded approach to things, which I really like. And I also know that you do have a healthy skepticism, which is a great thing. So, from a, a paranormal theory, I mean, I like the theories of the paranormal, even though I don't always believe in the the what what people. I don't believe everywhere that claims to be haunted is haunted. But from the paranormal theory, if this guy, if Robert Cox was chopped up and there was no resolution and you know whoever did it got away with it the theory is that you might have sort of a restless spirit roaming around and then if it was patrick then that would be literally blood money that that he built his his life on so even though i know you're i know where you stand as far as skepticism i'm curious is there any ghostly stories that is potentially connected to this this money there are some connected to the arcade and it there's a bit of a question of who they think is haunting the place um but i know that there's been stories of seeing the apparition of a man in victorian clothing on the second floor of it because it's a two floor two level building um, and they said they've seen some sort of apparition just kind of walking the second floor balcony um, then there's another story that came from a different butcher shop, not his father's, um, but it was behind the um, arcade. And supposedly the butcher who owned that shop 
got into a fight with his apprentice um, with a meat cleaver. And I don't know if both of them died or one of them died, but somebody died. And they say that sometimes in the arcade towards the back where the old butcher shop was, you'll hear the sound of two men arguing and then just horrific screaming. So I don't know. I just find that funny though. It ended up being a butcher shop. (laughs) Another butcher. (laughs) Bad butchers. I mean, it's fun. I don't know about for you, but when I was growing up, we, we didn't, we didn't go, we didn't have a butcher. It was just, we would go to the grocery store. The The chain down here was Publix. And I mean, I guess there was a, a butcher, but you would just go to the deli and they would just slice up some boar's head or whatever. It's not like we were going to buy, uh, you know, big things of meat from the butcher, even if it were grilling up burgers or whatever. It wasn't really until I started living in New York City that I had a butcher and I'd have a, yeah. a place that I would go to. But the butcher was great. Very friendly. I mean... I'm and what you know, who knows um, in his private life? Who knows what was in the sausages? I don't know, but <laughs> but I feel like butchers get a bad name, you know? Yeah. Uh, um it's you know, there's also I'm sure you saw the movie uh, Gangs of New York where yes. it was uh um uh oh D- Daniel Day Lewis who played like Bill the Butcher who was, you know, running the gang, but he was running around with like a, a hatch or a, a cleaver as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it kind of just plays into the story a little too easy. You know, a butcher with a bad temper. Yeah. Somebody else would brag about money and the person shows up like dismantled. Like well, that's, that's such a bad move. I mean, like I, not that the guy deserved it, but anyone could tell you like, don't yeah. especially in what 1840 was it like don't uh, yeah. don't be like running your mouth about how much first off it's not classy it's no. it's just a bad look but that's not <laughs> doesn't mean that you're asking to get chopped up into little pieces but but you are sort of inviting some some bad attention if you walk into a place you're like hey look got all the cash like look you know yeah. um Especially you know. here in, a, in a city that might have been, it might have been a struggling part of town at one point. Who knows? You know, if you have people in there and they're having a hard time making ends meet and you have somebody come, some clown coming in, like, I don't know if, he, I don't know if he was drunk or what. I don't, I don't remember what the um, tour guy had said, but he just said that the man was very loud about it. Like everybody in the bar knew that he had a stash of cash. Yeah. So now the university, I imagine, yeah, they yeah they want to talk about sort of the donation from the the doctor son and the wife, but it, it, I imagine they're probably not too receptive if you try to bring up the whole butcher story. No, it's funny because there was a book called I believe it's called The Main Inheritance, and I forget who it was written by, but I think it was also backed by Queensland University, which I was kind of surprised by. Um, so they have Patrick. Patrick's son, James's name on buildings. Um, so the, the main name is there, but I think they just try to avoid talking too much about where the main money may have come from. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's a little, a little much. What, what was the road again? Kangaroo. kangaroo. Um, it's, it's an area. It's called Kangaroo Point. Kangaroo Point. Yeah. So stereotypical Australians. <laughs> it's like, is that right yeah. next door to eucalyptus circle or uh i don't know 
I thought it was funny because I forgot the name of the river. And I was like, oh, I wonder what the, the river's name is in Brizzy. And then I was like, oh, Brisbane River. <laughs> Brisbane River. No, I actually, I do love Australia. Uh, it's the, I, I do like, you know, the people and everything over there. But I also appreciate that they do lean into their kangaroo-ness pretty, pretty regularly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, that's great. Well, uh, anything else with that story? Or is that, I mean, that's, that's a great story. That's definitely a bad butcher. Um, and it's one of your favorites out of Brisbane. Oh yeah, for sure. I was uh, studying that one for a while and then I had met, actually, I think that's what had happened. I, there's a, a group called Brisbane greeters and it's a nonprofit. You just reach out to them, ask them for a tour of the city and they will set you up with a guide who just loves the city and loves talking history and they'll walk you all over the place. They'll talk about the different floods they had there. And Patrick got brought up, I think, by the first one. And then I was so into the story. And I think it's because they showed me the arcade because the arcade's still there. It's beautiful. It's just really interesting. It's not something you'd see over here in the States um, design-wise. And you, you just don't really see much like it. But there was this bulletin board of sorts that had information of the history and then it had a picture of might have been james it was probably james main um it just talked a little bit about it it was just enough for me to be like who is this guy yeah (laughs) what's the story here so then the second time i reached out to them i was like do you guys know anybody or have anybody that does tours that knows the main story And then they hooked me up with this guy who brought me around town and showed me like um, areas that were connected to the family. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I I like this little, the history that sort of presents itself out of nowhere, that you just kind of encounter if I have a a flyer or just these random little stories that you latch onto. And then you go down that rabbit hole of researching. Um, I love those. Well, all right. Well, the other thing is that, it's fascinating to me that the guy was chopped up and then just sort of spread all over the place. First off, was were they trying? It was to to your knowledge, was he? Were they trying to hide the body parts? Or I feel like the body parts were hidden in different places. I remember they were like, "Oh, his limbs were in this place, and his head was over here, and then his torso was found in this place." But it was all around there. He was just scattered around Kangaroo Point. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well. I mean, that could have been some choice choice cuts of meat that the uh, butcher could have used. <laughs> Look, I'm not saying you should, but I'm saying times were tough oh, back no. then, and no. i i do i I do appreciate that eventually the the son and then the the who was a doctor then donated all the money to yeah. the college. Mary, it was Mary and James. It also it also just goes to show that college really will cost you an arm and a leg. Oh, hey! Yeah. Oh, yeah, it, was, it, was bad bad. it was bad. It was. I know. I I embrace it. Uh, well, okay. I'm gonna dive into my story, but before I do, let's hear from another sponsor. Nightmareka is brought to you by the Smell of Fear Candle Co. You know I'm a nerd. You know this. But what you may not know is that I also like candles. And a good-smelling candle can bring a lot of character to the room. And Smell of Fear candles bring a lot of literary and film characters to a room. These scents are inspired by characters and settings from stories and history. 
For example, the Telltale Heart Candle from the Essence of Poe collection smells like the infamous oak floorboards from that story, with just a hint of tobacco that I imagine that crazed narrator was frantically smoking. I also dig the Gonna Need a Bigger Boat Candle from the Cinematic Sense collection. Jaws is one of my favorite movies, and this candle puts me right in the action. It smells like salty sea air with the wood of an old fishing boat and just a hint of whiskey that Quint was knocking back. There's also the Sasquatch candle from the Cryptid Collection. No, it it does not smell like the stinky beast that we all know and love, but instead it's inspired by the heavily forested areas in the northwest that Bigfoot is said to roam, with hints of redwood, cedar, pine, and earth. Other collections include literary redolence, televised temptations, a whiff of king, think Stephen King, with more than 80 candles and counting, there are new candles being released monthly. Newer releases are Welcome to Fright Night, for real. And that smells like the fresh fruit that Jerry Dandridge was always munching on in the movie. Well, when not munching on humans. There's also Icy Dead People, an icy blend of spearmint, eucalyptus, and mint. And January's releases are a Crucible-inspired creation and something from the Conjuring universe. These candles are a coconut soy blend with no paraffin, so they are eco-friendly, organic, renewable, sustainable, and have minimal environmental impact. They are also clean burning, with almost zero soot in comparison to other types of wax candles. They're also slow burning, with a fantastic scent throw and not made with nasty chemicals. The candles are available in several shapes and sizes, as well as in wax melts. They also do wholesale, custom, and a subscription box service that features each month's new releases. And the candles are sold on Etsy, as well as thesmelloffear.com. They also donate a portion of profits to various non-profit organizations monthly. And past donations have gone to COVID relief funds, pet rescue organizations, and crisis services. Isn't that just nice? That's really nice. I like that. Finally, with the code NIGHTMERICA, you can get 15% off your order at thesmelloffear.com. So check them out. Smell of Fear Candle Co. They make good sense. And we're back. And for this tale, we are going to head to New Orleans. Have you spent a lot of time in New Orleans? I can't recall. Yeah, I've been down there a few times. It's a great, great town. A lot of energy there. Yeah. And, well, in 1927, specifically October 1927, it was the Jazz Age in the Crescent City. And we're going to go right into the French Quarter on 715 Ursuline Street. Now, I think French Quarter these days, we typically think of it as sort of a party area. Um it was, in fact, maybe a little too much of a party area. I, I like the French Quarter, but I'm not a, I'm not the person that needs to be on Bourbon Street constantly. <laughs> I think like walking down it once and being like, oh, okay, there's, mm-hmm. there's the place where you can get hurricanes. Now I smell urine and vomit. Yeah. I think I'm good. Yes. Yeah, I had my first drink ever in New Orleans at 27 with, while with Ghost Hunters. So it was an interesting trip. <laughs> what Do you remember what it was? Was it like one of those oh, grenade things? Or? 
No, it was horrible. I went to a bar with Barry and one of his friends. And ba you know Barry. He's just yeah. like, Miss Williams, I'm going to buy you a drink. And I was like, ah, oh, Barry, I don't drink. And he's like, and you call yourself Irish? I was like, you're an ass. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he was just like, listen, I'll, I'll get you a drink. You drink it. You drink it. You don't. I'll drink it. I'm like, okay. All right. And I was so used to people putting me on the spot and making it this big thing. I just stayed away from it. I didn't want that. So... Yeah, I ended up having a drink with him, but he got me like a, it was like a seven up in whiskey. It was nasty. Oh, Barry. Oh. Uh, God, it's such it a terrible. I mean, yeah. I like Barry. I think he's an upstanding guy. That would say that's a terrible choice, terrible. Barry. Uh, yeah. I, I want to have him subscribe to this podcast. So we, just so we can hear him, uh, hear us talk about his poor drink choices. Well, no, no whiskey and Seven Up at this time. But instead, at during in 1927, this was a bit of a working class area, working class community down there in the French Quarter. And so, in this building in Ursuline Street, on the second floor, was an apartment that resided Teresa and Leonide, or Lonnie Moiti, and they were married to two brothers, Henry and Joseph, and there were three children in the mix. And so Teresa and Lonnie were sisters-in-law and they got along pretty well. Not much is really known about these women. The, the It seems like kind of classic maneuver to sort of wipe away their, their personalities and their personal stories uh, at the time. That wasn't really the focus of this story. But we do know that Lonnie had written a personal essay, sort of like a manuscript in the works, yeah. that she was trying to get published. And the contents of the essay were, interestingly enough, about the mistakes of getting married. And <laughs> she she claimed she was happy at the time, but there was a lot of kind of regret about marriage and things like that. And they had moved to New Orleans from a, a place called New Iberia, which I think was about two hours away. So in this essay, in this manuscript, she even wrote the line, be careful for marriage is a life sentence. <laughs> Not for everybody. <laughs> Touche. And so it sounds like maybe she was a little unhappy. And after all, Lonnie's husband, Joseph, had moved in with his sister because he said he had caught Lonnie with another man. Oh, yeah. That's trouble. And, and neighbors of the Moiti couples reported hearing ugly arguments through the walls and fights about money or about pat bad parenting or the fact that the women were neglecting the children or a lot of accusations of infidelity. There was a lot of that going around. And meanwhile, Teresa, her husband, Henry, he believed she was having an affair with their landlord, Joe Caruso. Nothing against Joe Caruso, but that does sound like a guy that's probably having a, an affair with the American lady. Sorry to any Joe Caruso's out in the audience. <laughs> Lost one subscriber. Anyhow, so Henry thought she was having an affair with Joe Caruso. He also thought, Henry thought that his sister-in-law, Lonnie, was a bad influence on his wife, Teresa. And in fact, on October 26, 1927, 
Henry said to the housekeeper, Nettie Compass, that he should, quote, take a pistol and shoot both of those bastards, referring to the women. Mm. Yeah. And what's interesting also, just as a side note, even though these people were not doing great and like they weren't necessarily financially set, they actually were pretty, they were struggling. But even in that time in New Orleans, on a modest income, you could still afford a housekeeper. So that's what they had. Not, not so bad. So anyhow, Nettie Compass was a housekeeper. That's who he said, take a pistol and shoot both those bastards. She probably dismissed this because later that night, Nettie, the housekeeper, saw Teresa and Henry as well as Lonnie and the kids. And they were heading out and looking happy. Although maybe she thought it was odd, as she later said, when she whis- when he whispered to her, don't pay any mind if you happen to hear the children crying early the next morning. Okay. Well, the next day, the housekeeper, Nettie Compass, heads to the second floor apartment to clean up. And upon her entrance, she encounters blood, a lot of blood. Yeah. Cleaning lady grabs two nearby men who just happen to be insurance brokers or insurance salesmen. Grabs two nearby men and they survey the scene and it is a bad scene so much so that their first move is not to call the police but instead to call the local reporter George William Healy. And Hmm. Healy later on in his career or in his life when he was writing about his career he wrote about what he saw. Healy wrote quote we found stains on the floor and saw a large trunk in a bedroom partially open. When I pulled up the trunk lid, a woman's body, arms, and legs, severed from the torso, was exposed. They also encountered blood-soaked mattresses and a bathroom covered in blood. They found, this is just sort of especially gory, they found four fingers belonging to a woman on the bed. And then in the next bedroom... There was another trunk and another woman's torso. And in the bodies of one of these women was a gold wedding band buried in a deep gash in her back. And there also happened to be a gold bracelet still hanging from one of the wrists, which of course had been separated from the rest of her body. They found what is called a cane knife, a bloody cane knife. I had to look this up. Are you familiar with what a cane knife looks like? It sounds familiar and I'm having a hard time. It's a, it's mean looking. It's yeah. It was used on sugar plantations for sugar okay. cane. But it looks like a pretty light knife, maybe about a pound and change, pound and a quarter. Okay. And I've seen some of the ones I was looking at online were maybe shorter blades, maybe 13 inches. But in this case, this was a two foot long blade. And it's also a fairly wide blade. And there's this mean looking hook at the end of the blade as well. I just looked one up. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) mean looking. Yeah, it is. So the bodies of these women who were in their mid-20s, lives cut 
far too short, belong to, not surprisingly, Teresa and Lonnie. Now, oddly, this is just bizarre, the manuscript that Lonnie had been working on was found in one of the cabinets in her bedroom, and a rejection slip from a publisher was found blood-soaked on the floor. Just sort of an ironic little twist there, this story about a woman's young life and marriage and everything, and that rejection slip. Well, the police very quickly set about on the case when they did arrive on the scene. And first thing they want to do is find these two husbands, the brothers. Now, Joseph, who was Lonnie's estranged husband, remember he had already moved out. He turned himself in pretty much right away. Henry, meanwhile, had other plans. He had plans to get away. That always works out so well. <laughs> well, and in 1927, you figure maybe it was a little bit more possible to do so. And he yeah. was actually pretty close. There was stories of him perhaps boarding a ship to skip town. And so the police alerted the ships about this potential plot. And New Orleans Superintendent of Police Thomas Healy, different Healy, sent dispatches to the law enforcement that described Henry as having dark, bushy hair, very dark brown eyes. And this is the thing that got him in trouble. A tattoo on his arm that was a flower with lady face, also a nude woman. So this tattoo is very distinct. And by, and just another side note about this in one of the other police reports, they refer to him as singularly hairy. So basically they're saying this guy's like a Henry's a hairy bastard. (laughs) You know, watch out for the, look out for the big hairy guy, Um, (laughs) which I like tattoo and hairy guy. (laughs) And, and so by Saturday, October 29th, crewmen on a ship had, a sighting of Henry Moiti and they reported it to the sheriff and Henry had gotten his way onto the ship using a false name, but the crew recognized a tattoo from the newspaper stories. And then they, they called the Popo. Now, initially Henry said that he had nothing to do with the murders. In fact, it was the work of a redheaded sailor. In fact, a redheaded Norwegian (laughs) sailor. (laughs) Very specific. Mm -hmm. But within a couple of days, he confessed. And he claimed that Teresa and the landlord, Joe Caruso, were pretty thick and that they would flirt right under his nose. And he said that Teresa and Lonnie, on the night of these murders, that they were planning on moving out, that they were going to ditch him. And in fact, later on in his life, Henry reportedly said that Teresa waved a $10 bill in front of his face and said she could make more money in one week as a sex worker than he could have, or one more money in one day as a sex worker than he could have made in an entire week. But on the night of the murder, the women, they go out for a night on the town and Henry drank and they returned. And maybe things were about to be better in that case. I don't know. This seems like this could have been a a turning point in the story because the women returned and they were hungry. So Henry, the women, and the three kids went out for a bite. And again, that housekeeper, Nettie, saw them. 
And on the way home, though, on the way home, maybe after a night where tempers had started to cool down, who knows, a local busybody stops them and makes a casual comment in front of Henry and to Teresa saying there were rumors that she were she was going to run off with Joe Caruso that night. Oh. So they all go home and they do have these two trunks and maybe they started packing up to leave. Who knows exactly? But we do know that Henry said he was stewing on this. He was drunk. He was angry. He drank some more. He went out. He bought that cane knife and then he drank some more. And then he killed Teresa as she slept. And then Lonnie. Then he dismembered them and stuffed them in the trunks. There's some really gory details from the Times-Picayune newspaper where in his testimony, he talks about the fact that when he killed Teresa, she didn't move, that there was no screams, there was no movement. It was just this almost quiet death. And then Lonnie was a little bit more uh, active and vocal. But the Times-Picayune also wrote at the time, The manner in which these two bodies of the women were mutilated and dismembered indicated a man familiar with this trade. And indeed, the coroner, Dr. George Roebling, said the killer who decapitated Mrs. Henry Moiti knew enough not to cut through the bone, but to cut through the joint. The appearance of the head of the wife of the defendant indicated that it had been skillfully removed and skillfully removed because indeed Henry had once worked as a butcher. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And before this current profession, his current profession was as a sign painter, but he was known around town as a handyman with a knife. And apparently, sadly, that ended up being the truth. A little too handy. Yeah. So November 1927, from behind bars, you know, he confessed eventually, and from behind bars, he is reported by the Times-Picayune as he's awaiting his sentence to have threatened the man who he believed 
was responsible really for all this, and that was Joe Caruso. He laid all the blame on Joe Caruso. He said, quote, if I ever get my hands on that Joe Caruso, I'll chop him up into little pieces, not big pieces like my wife, but little pieces. Oh my God. My God, I'll How make unstable. him. Yeah. My God, I'll make him look like something that's been run through a sausage mill. And then perhaps thinking he was a romantic, he also said, Joe Caruso took my wife. She was beautiful and I loved her. So Henry mm-hmm. Moiti was tried for both murders separately, two separate trials back to back. And he was then sentenced to two concurrent life sentences. But what's interesting is before he received that life sentence, the prosecution wanted to see this guy hanged. Yeah. But his defense attorneys, well, you know, for it was scandalous. It was, it was a big deal. It was a big bloody murder at the time, but his defense attorneys called in some psychiatrists and they said that these murders were the work of a maniac, a diseased mind that could not tell right from wrong. Basically, they said he suffered from temporary insanity due to the consumption of alcohol. Oh, Lordy. Yeah, but then he's saying that stuff from the jail cell with no alcohol in him, right? Right. About putting his hand on Joe Caruso, so that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I mean, he admits that he did it, but he's blaming the booze. I don't know. It's you too know. Easy of a... But people bought it, and that's how he escaped hanging and instead got the life sentence. And it's not quite over yet because so he was apparently a great prisoner. He was a model prisoner. And in fact, he would paint during while he was in prison. I know you've uh, you've done a lot of painting yourself. Perhaps this is something that I hope you don't ever end up in prison. But if you're a model <laughs> prisoner, you can have that hobby. And in fact, he painted a portrait of the Louisiana of a Louisiana governor that ended up hanging in the governor's mansion for a good long time. And they thought he was a fairly trusty prisoner. And in fact, they allowed him to leave the prison on errands. And indeed, that's what he did, because in 1944, he was a trustee is what they called them. And in 1944, after 16 years of serving time, he was allowed to make a run to the post office one day. Oh, God. All right. Here we go. Instead, he hails a cab and he basically slowly makes his way to Chicago. Yeah. Not in that cab. He switched cars and ended up that would be a hell of a cab fare. But (laughs) ended up making his way to Chicago. But what's funny is nobody seems too concerned about this escaped murder. In fact, the prison superintendent even said, ah, he'll eventually come back of his own accord. He was, you know, he was a good prisoner. And plus, he's already done 16 years of his life sentence. He'll come back. He'll come back. Well, spoiler, he didn't. And instead, he was caught in St. Louis, Missouri in 1946. So he was pretty much on the run for, but you know, for about two years. And then he was returned to prison. <laughs> And because, again, just a weird, these two women are dead, murdered by this guy, but he's a good prisoner. So even though he's returned to prison after escaping, he was still pardoned in 1948. That's insane. That's the problem, though. Like, if you look at a lot of, I I was really into reading about true crime and serial serial killers, especially when I was in my early 20s. And I had this whole um, idea of possibly like doing the whole profile 
thing as, as a job. And I think what drives me crazy, especially with this story, is they talk about him being a model person. A lot of these people are model people outside the home. <laughs> you know, it's like you look at Bundy. He was um, studying to be a lawyer. He worked a suicide hotline. Um, he was dating a woman with a kid. They had nothing but good things to say about him. Then you look at like um, Gacy, you know, clown on the weekends, entertaining kids. And it's just like they're they're looked at well outside of the home. But sometimes even their home life, their their family life, the family has no idea what's mm -hmm. going on because they're like a front. They're another part of the image to keep the, you know, secret life hidden. So it's yeah. just it's insane. It's insane what some people can get away with and how they can function in these ways. It's crazy. Well, perhaps you would have guessed it wasn't a great move pardoning him and yeah. allowing him to be a free man again, because then he moves to California and, yeah. and in 1956 at a Los Angeles hotel, he shoots his girlfriend. Her name was Alberta orange. He shoots her in the chest. She survived, but he was sentenced to five years at Folsom prison for attempted murder and assault with a deadly weapon. And he died in prison about a year later. So in, in, yeah, in 57 is when he died, but crazy yeah. that, you know, what's he do? He goes back and, you know, kills someone. I'm, and I don't know if he tried the temporary insanity thing again, but so the, just the little paranormal buttons to this is that while in prison, one of the stories connected to this is that while in prison, he allegedly was overheard, overheard frequently talking about a mysterious figure who told him he needed to kill and dismember his wife and his sister-in-law. Now, this story is also known as the Trunk Murders, and it's gained some attention in recent years in New Orleans, but it was largely ignored for a very long time. And what I find so fascinating about this, and I think you can, I think you can appreciate this, is that, so this is a, a gruesome story. This is documented in 1927, but it was overshadowed for a long time by a story that perhaps is more questionable in fact. And there was a book of Louisiana folklore that was released in the 1940s. It was called Gumbo Yaya by Lyle Saxon. And the story told of these Mr. And Mrs. Hans Mueller, a German couple who moved to New Orleans in the mid 1800s. And he was a butcher as well. And he had a sausage factory. And after years of hard work, suddenly he wasn't so interested in his wife anymore after she was busting her ass to help launch sausage factory with him. And, and instead a younger assistant caught his eye. So he kills her, grinds her up, turns her into sausage and tries to be with the younger assistant. But instead he is haunted by these gory images of his wife and they call it the sausage ghost. Cause she comes emerges from the, the the mill the sausage uh <laughs> grinder and whatnot and appears in other forms and she the haunting was said to have to have driven him insane there's a, that's a it's a little bit more questionable but you can see oh and then the the house that supposedly this sausage ghost took place in was down the street on ursuline street as well so you could see perhaps how like this lore came in and attached itself to a real fact-based story and yeah. so the trunk murders were talked about a lot less whereas the sausage ghost got all of the 
got all the attention. Yeah. So before, before, and, and all of that came from, uh, there's a lot of sources out there. I want to give credit to New York daily news, the historic, uh, uh, a, a historic register of New Orleans and also Atlas Obscura. And I don't know. What do you think about that one? Did you like that story? It's gory. It is gory. I just like, I, I mean, that's what made me want to do the profiling thing when I was younger. It was just like, what is it about these people? What do they have that we don't have? Or what are they lacking? that we have that makes them capable of doing what they're doing. It just, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around, but there was another book that I had read too. This guy, um, he would break down um, serial killers into different classes, uh, motives and you know, what drives them and their triggers and all that sort of thing. It was really interesting. And he was saying that in his lifetime, he ran into eight like unknowingly at the time. So it just makes you wonder how many people like this are just out wandering around and you just bumping into them, but just you're happy, you're lucky enough not to be the the target at the time. Well, you know, I often think about that sort of the the especially in normal times. I travel a lot and find myself in bars. I talk to people. I strike up conversation all the time. Yeah. What if you were sitting next to someone having a beer, literally strike up a conversation with someone that ends up being either a, a murderer or a serial killer, someone that's done it once, someone that's done it multiple times. And also that that thought of like, what if the conversation were to, to take just a slight turn? What if you just said something different? What if the universe on the path, your cosmic path, you zigged instead of zagged mm -hmm. and then there's this whole other outcome that could result yeah. from piquing the interest of, of one of these people. Had you ever seen, or have you heard about the Iceman? The Kuklinski? Yes. I, I don't know the story intimately, but yes, I'm, I've heard of it. You have to watch the interview a psychiatrist did with him before he was um, put to death because it was the wildest thing. You know, I remember watching it and I turned the volume off just for a little bit. And he's this big teddy bear looking guy, like a grandpa looking guy. And he's just, you know, the rosy cheeks and the laughing. And he just looked like so much fun. And you just wanted to hug him. And then you turn the volume on and he's talking about, you know, um, taking people to some random cave in Jersey, tying them up, hog tying them, cutting them so they're bleeding, leaving a recorder going and letting rats eat the person alive over an extended period of time. Or like he would be laughing and joking and looking like a teddy bear while he's talking about like dismembering or shooting or, or um, you know, injecting somebody with cyanide at a right. club in New York. It's, it's a, I just don't understand how these people function and they can mix in and blend in with the normal population so easily too. It's creepy. That's why I do like the profilers out there or very much appreciate the profilers because in my, in my, especially in my early days as a reporter before I did entertainment and paranormal stuff, like, you know, I, I was, uh, somewhat involved a little bit with some stories that were pretty bleak, pretty dark and the stuff sticks with you and it still sticks with me many years later. Whereas, and, and people are like, well, why would you want to do that? Just go do something else. And, and 
for me, yeah, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to have to see images every time I closed my eyes of something so dark and bleak. But you have to appreciate, like, you know, the detectives, the profilers, the people that intentionally expose themselves to this in the interest of capturing these bad guys and hunting them down. Yeah. And exa- I mean, that's exactly the exact thing, too. And I was thinking about doing it for a job. I was like, well, if I'm out there looking for these people, they'll probably eventually come looking for you, too. And I don't know that I want to deal with that. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> just it's yeah, I don't I don't know how I, I just don't get it. It's well, one of the things that I don't think most people can wrap their heads around. I think that's probably a good thing. I think not being able to wrap your head around it is is probably a good healthy thing but i also think we we try to we try to understand what makes people tick which is why there is such a popularity for true crime and these you know the documentaries and everything about this and with that said i know you've got to go but i'm curious anything that you're checking out any entertainment that you're a big fan of right now it doesn't have to be true crime doesn't have to be bleak or doesn't have to be paranormal but um right now um i've kind of done like a revisit to dexter because i heard that's coming back with like i think 10 new episodes is it this year so i was really psyched about that um i like weird true crimey type of shows i had gotten hooked on you on that i i have not watched it um my my good friend jamie is friends with someone on that show and So my main connection, so I know one of the guys on the show, Robert, Robin Lord Taylor, who was in Gotham, hell of a great guy. He, yeah. I guess, was the one that's kept, I think, in second season. He's he's kept behind a glass case or whatever. Oh, yes. yep. Yeah, I, I think I having not watched the show, I don't know precisely, but he's a great guy. But then there's another character on that show that's friends with my friend Jamie and my main connection to that is that they did like a, a spin class together, like a video spin class together that they coached um, after he had done the show. Like he came back to New York and then they coached the show. So it's like, oh, cool. You have a you know guy that plays a serial killer coaching your <laughs> spin class. You know, that's, that's interesting. It's a good but, show. Well, it's more on the stalker end of things. Yeah. And it's kind of told in his voice as well, kind of like Dexter. There's some similar similarities, but there's no real good side to this, this one. It starts off with the love and the romance and, you know, it's, it's creepy. It's really creepy because the women would start with this guy who they think is amazing. And it's like the man of their dreams and it just slowly starts to fall apart. Um, yeah, it's a good show. I, I really like Dexter until we got into the later seasons and it just started falling apart in my opinion, which is I I'm actually most of the time, I'm not a fan of going back and doing an extra season of something. If, if if it ends well, I sort of think like, let just send it off. In this case, it ended so badly. The last couple seasons, especially the last season, especially, especially the finale, in my opinion was so disappointing that in this case, I'm like, okay, let's maybe try to redo this and fix it because yeah, the Michael C. Hall, right, as the actor, he's he's phenomenal. He's great, yeah. but it was he just did. such a bad send off. I think well, the only I, other um, finale like that that left me disappointed was Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, Game of Thrones and Dexter. It was just like 
how 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 did this happen like it was such a good show like this this is really how we're ending this this doesn't make any sense i and i won't go off too much on a tangent on this i don't know particularly the the particulars of dexter but i know in the case of game of thrones they were printing money and hbo was happy to let them continue printing money they could have done another season another two seasons they could have had a longer season yeah, and they could have ended it any way they wanted, but it seemed like the producers just rushed to end it and did it in such a a very fast, unnecessarily yeah. fast, ham-handed way. It was, yeah, I yeah. that's that's a whole other conversation. But <laughs> I will leave you with, even though I know you're not like super pursuing the, um, not watching all of the. <laughs> Hello there. I'm Chris's roid raging boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> minus the roids and minus the rage. He's right now. <laughs> <laughs> you are now you are now part of the podcast. Uh-oh. <laughs> That's what you can get, babe. <laughs> and we're just talking about psychos too, so that doesn't fit really well. I don't know if photo bombing or video bombing the podcast makes you psycho enough, but no, but with the whole roid raging. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) Well, I will, I will let you leave you with just a recommendation on my part from the paranormal pop culture end is ghost adventures has this Cecil hotel investigation on discovery plus. I've heard of Cecil hotel. Yeah, well, it's fascinating because it's the the location of the Elisa Lamb, the mysterious Elisa Lamb murder, which I've talked about on this podcast, or not not necessarily murder, disappearance and odd death. Yeah. And, but also Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, oh, stayed yeah, there yeah. as well. So yeah. it's interesting because they just gain access to this this place that no one has ever gained access to. So That's it's cool. fascinating from that perspective even if sometimes watching the paranormal investigations can, can get, well, I mean, it was, it was your work for a long time. So it can feel a little familiar, I guess. But. Competitive, yeah. Well, yeah. with that said, Chris Williams, I very much appreciate you doing this and telling a great story and a story of a Australian butcher who may or may not have been behind the chopping up of the guy that was really or stupid Robert and Fox. yeah, running his mouth after making some money. So I think there's a lesson there. Don't make money and then run your mouth in <laughs> Australia or anywhere. Thanks for having me. Thank yeah. you. Where can everybody find you and yeah. say hi? No, anywhere. Oh, I'm on Twitter too much. Way too much. You know this. I'm constantly on there <laughs> being a pain in the butt. So <laughs> Twitter. And I started doing YouTube videos. I'm hoping to be more consistent with it this year. Um, I started doing videos where I would find some sort of older artifact that had or antique that had a name on it and then just enough information to trace the original owner mm-hmm. and then just on a whim, see what they were like and what their lives were like. So that's been kind of fun. What's but. your what's your YouTube and Twitter handle? I mean, I know. Um, just yeah, just search Chris Williams. I tend I think I'm the first one that pops up on YouTube. And then my Twitter handle is at Chris Williams. All right. Chris, thank you. And we'll have to do this again soon. Yes, it'll be fun. All right. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Please consider giving Nightmarica a review on Apple Podcast. It really helps raise awareness and boost the show's rankings. Also, 
Give me a follow on social media, at Nightmarica on Instagram and Facebook, and at Aaron Sagers on Instagram and Twitter. And share Nightmarica with your friends. If you are able, I'd appreciate your support on patreon.com forward slash Aaron Sagers, where I also create tiki recipes, hold live streams, and share exclusive content. Don't miss new episodes of Paranormal Caught on Camera on Travel Channel and Discovery+. Plus. If you'd like to share your own paranormal stories or get paranormal advice for entertainment purposes only, email nightmericashow at gmail.com.